Amen. Well, I, uh, I consider myself a little bit uh, of an amateur uh, aficionado, I guess would be a good word for it, of church history. I, I love to study the past. I love to study the men and the women who God has used mightily, the, the people whose shoulders that we stand on. In fact, I've even once or twice uh, gotten to, to looking around at different programs around the country to see if I could find a church history major that I could participate in and, and get actually a, a degree in church history. I just think it's fascinating. I think it's very, very interesting. I think it's really important. There's a few different strains of church history uh, that different people, uh, certain strains appeal to different people, I guess would be a good way to say it. Um, One of those strains that that a lot of people like to look into is the different theological debates that have risen down through history. When this particular uh, idea or topic came up and there's two camps, this group believes this way and this group believes this way, and this debate arose, and, and what happened in that debate? Some people like to study the formation of denominations, a lot of times those denominations formed out of those debates and, and out of those conversations. Uh, and those are good things to study. I think it's important for us to know those things. It's important to know where our beliefs come from, how have they originated, uh, how did we get to where we are today as a church. But my favorite thing, the thing that fires me up, that gets me excited when I look into church history, is I love to study revival. I love to study the people who God has used mightily to to bring into God's kingdom just massive amounts of people in one shot. Where where there's these different points that kind of punctuate throughout history, throughout the globe, where God would raise up a leader, where God would raise up a church, where God would raise up a group of people with a message, with a heart, and they carried that out into their community and greatly impacted the world. I love to study that stuff. I love to study men and women like uh, Smith Wigglesworth, um, like John Wesley, like John G. Lake, like William J. Seymour. I love to see all these people who God has used down through history, like Jonathan Edwards, people who God has raised up to reach a generation. And I love to look back and to see how all these things have transpired. Ultimately, My prayer is that we would not simply be able to look back and read about them or hear about them, but that we could learn from them and see God do something incredible in our generation. Man, if you're joining us today for the first time or you haven't been here for a while, I want you to know we don't just do this for fun. I like having fun at church. We talked about last week. Church should be enjoyable. So we want to have fun. It's a good thing. But we don't just do this for fun. We do this because we believe that we have a mandate from Jesus Christ to carry his name into the world, to carry his name to the last, the least, and the lost. We believe that we have a purpose and a calling as a church to be part of something in our generation. And we take that very seriously. I take that very seriously. Don't misunderstand. Don't come in and think, oh, well, that's the church with loud music. That's the church where the pastor wears jeans. Well, you know, that, that means that somehow we approach God casually. We have a casual atmosphere in our services. But we believe and take very seriously who God is and what he wants to accomplish in our generation. So I believe that God has something he wants to do in our generation. I believe God has something he wants to do in our church. I believe God has something he wants to do in your family. And I think if you lean in today, if you take notes, if you open up your ears and your heart to the voice of the Holy Spirit, I believe that something could even start today in your life, in your workplace, in your church, in your community, in your family. So I want to share with you a passage of scripture that I I believe so accurately describes not just what was going on 
in the season when it was written, which of course it does. The Bible is completely perfect in all that it describes. Its history is reliable. But I don't believe it just describes what the Israelites were going through in this day and age. I believe it with incredible clarity describes the generation that we live in today, describes the point in history that we stand upon. It's in Judges chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. One thing that we discover uh, as we look into the annals of, of church history, as we look into the history of revival specifically, is that anytime God did a massive move, anytime God showed up and thousands were saved in, in a short period of time, the people who God used to bring in usher in that revival had a high value on the word of God. So I want to do something today. It's kind of old school, but I want us to stand and rise as we read through the Word of God. We're going to read five verses. They're not going to be up real, real long. I know you just sat down and got comfortable, but we're going to honor the reading of God's Word today. We're going to posture ourselves in, in such a way that we say, God, we're expecting something from you today. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. amen. Praise God. Judges chapter 2, we're going to start in verse number 6. It said, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites... They went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. So just to catch you up with what's happened here, uh, God raises up a guy named Moses to deliver his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. He brings them out across the Red Sea. You're probably familiar with the story. To the edge of the promised land. Moses doesn't go into the promised land. God raises up Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. And so Joshua, the whole book of Joshua, is the story of them taking the land that God has promised, possessing the land that God has marked out for them. So we see the Israelites come into the land in the book of Joshua. God does miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Exodus and Joshua, if you read those two books, you're going to get fired up about the power of God. God shows himself mightily in these generations And then here we get to Judges, and now it's done. The battle is over. They've conquered Israel. They're ready to go in and start building their own house, ready to go in and start establishing their own place to take their own inheritance. Verse 7 says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So Joshua's generation... The generation that Joshua led, that Joshua's people were a part of, they served the Lord until the day they died. What an awesome statement. They were faithful to God until the very end. Verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Dwindle, God can still use you. Uh, (laughs) Verse number 9, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Verse 10 is the verse that our series is going to hinge upon. It's the verse we're going to be focusing in on the next few weeks. It's the verse that, that's been on, burning on my heart since I first became acquainted with it years ago. It's, in my belief, one of the most tragic, heartbreaking verses in all of Scripture. Verse 10 says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what God had done in Israel. So a generation was used by God mightily, so God doing supernatural thing after supernatural thing, and yet their kids grew up to replace them. And the children of this incredible generation that God did such incredible things in didn't know God. They didn't know the things that God had done. You're like me, and you've got a heart for a next generation. That that breaks your heart to think that such a thing could be possible. Have you ever heard people say that the Bible is irrelevant or antiquated or outdated? It's not relatable to the things that we go through today. I dare say Joshua chapter 2 and verse 10 flies in the face of that because this verse, I believe, is so true 
of the world that we live in today. I look around and I see a generation growing up who doesn't know the Lord, doesn't know what God has done for his people. Over the next several verses and really the entirety of the book of Judges, which we're going to spend a lot of time in over the next couple of months, by the way. Got a series coming up on Gideon, which is in Judges, which I'm very excited about. But throughout this book, we see this, this spin cycle of sin that results because of a generation that didn't know the Lord. Because there was a generation who disobeyed. They disobeyed and they began to get into issues. And once they got into issues, they suffered destruction. Once destruction came, then they cried out, God, deliver us. They cried for deliverance. God showed up and delivered them. And what happened time and time and time and time and time again after God delivered them? They went right back to disobedience, right back to living for themselves, right back to living to their flesh. And so the cycle started again. They disobeyed. Then destruction came. Then they cried out for deliverance. God showed up and delivered them, and they disobeyed. And we see this cycle take place in the book of Judges. Here's what I think. I believe that God's positioned us today to stand between an older generation that we stand upon their shoulders here in America where we can look back into history and see, not that our history is perfect by any means, but that our nation loved God. We were a Christian nation, and we can look into the rearview mirror and see the standards that were upheld, and we can look into the future that's actually coming to us today and see a generation that grows up that doesn't know God. And we stand in the gap between these two generations. And I believe, I'm crazy enough to believe that God wants to use me and he wants to use you to connect this generation to this generation. To connect this generation who doesn't know God, who hasn't heard the things that God has done to the generations that have come before us who have built this nation on the word of God. What do you think? Am I crazy? Can it happen? I believe when we look into the history of the church, it's happened time and time again where God raised up a few people who were crazy enough to trust him, who were crazy enough to love him, who were crazy enough to read his word, who were crazy enough to seek the face of the God of Jacob. And when those generations rose out, rose up, things changed. History was changed. The world was changed. And I believe God's calling us to that today. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its advice, for its encouragement. I thank you for its protection. And God, I thank you for its warnings. And God, I pray that we would heed the warning of Judges chapter 2, verse 10 today. God, I pray that you would wake some of us up to the reality of what's going on in this world, to the reality of a generation that's growing up so far from you. And God, wake us up to the true potential that you've placed within us through your Holy Spirit to make a difference in this generation. Give us a heart for young people. God, break our hearts for children. God, I pray that you raise up within us a passion for the kids in Kids City. Lord, I pray that right now, even as they're in our services, God, that you would be moving in each of our Kids City classrooms. God, that you would be speaking through our teachers. God, I pray that they, the thing that they do would not be looked upon as childcare, would not be looked upon as a chore. God, but they would see the incredible ministry they are doing, the opportunity you've given them to reach a generation. We thank you for how you're using our people, God. We thank you for what you're going to do in us today. We love you. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thinking about this theme of different generations, I brought some stuff today with me from my generation. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys are going to be familiar with these things. This is a boom box. How many of you guys remember these? Uh, the breakdancing era, the 80s, uh, cardboard that you put down on the floor, 
Good times, good times. I was pretty young in the 80s, but I was old enough to remember them. This is a, actually a very beautiful machine right here, this boom box. And over here I have something that, that kind of demonstrates what many boom boxes had. This is a cassette recorder. I don't know if you guys remember these, uh, but these are, are relics. These are artifacts. I had to get these from an antique store. Not really. Uh, this is actually, I don't have any longer. This is how music used to be distributed. If you're like, I don't know what that is. They used to put music on these things before CDs were invented and before digital music came around. And uh, so we used to have music on this. I don't even have any music cassettes anymore. Uh, I used to listen to people on tape like Carmen. I'm ashamed to say that. Um, just kidding. But I did. I listened to Carmen and Newsboys. Some of you listen to worship teams like Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses on cassette. Uh, you got very spiritual on that stuff. Or I remember a friend coming over and bringing his Snoop Dogg tapes and his Warren G. Uh, that, was, that was the era in the early 90s that I was a big part of. Uh, this is actually a tape. Believe it or not, and this was just the only one I could find quickly. I got just a couple. But this is actually titled, appropriately enough, The Battle for a Generation. It's a teaching tape. And I thought how appropriate that this would be the tape that we could use for our object lesson today. The Battle for a Generation. I believe that's what we're in. But you see, the way that these worked, um, because they were on an analog format rather than a digital format, when you got a friend who was lucky enough to have a tape that you wanted you could actually dub that tape. And it wasn't like burning a CD. What you would do is you would take the tape and you put it in on the left side if you had a dual cassette recorder like this. And then you take another tape, the blank one that you wanted, and you put it in on this side. And you shut them both. And you hit record and you press play. And what's on this tape over here would transfer to what's on that tape over there. That's how we duplicated tapes. How many of you ever duplicated tapes? Woo! Praise Jesus, the spiritual up in here. More hands than during worship. Hallelujah. Uh, oh, stepping on toes now. Uh, but we did, right? We are, by the way, we're all felons. I'm pretty sure that's called piracy. Uh, don't judge us. Those of you who didn't raise your hands, this is the generation we grew up in. We're not saying it was right. It's just what we did, as if you don't burn CDs. Uh, so that was, that was how we grew up, duplicating and recording these tapes. And so you would take your we'll say Def Leppard, your friend's Def Leppard tape, and you'd record it, and then you'd be able to play it. And once you had that first generation tape, or that second generation tape now, you could listen to that, and most of the time it sounded pretty good. Man, if you recorded it off of an original, it didn't sound too bad. But here's what would happen. Now you've got the Def Leppard tape. Now your friend, a different friend who doesn't have it, he wants to record your du duplicate. So now this, which is now a copy is now the master that you're using to make another copy. And so you put this in over here, and you make another copy, and now he's got a second-generation tape. Sometimes it would go to a third-generation. Sometimes there would be a real popular tape that would come out. Man, I remember when Janet Jackson had one of her tapes come out, and we had to get our dance on, you know. So we were passing around Janet Jackson tapes, and we're getting four, five generations deep back in, like, 93 on this cassette tape. And once you got to four or five generations away from the original what did it sound like? You barely could hear it. It sounded like somebody was speaking in tongues. Uh, it's really what it sounded like because the, all the background noise would come in. Because it's on an analog format, it's not transferring the full information. And so you get just a little background noise on one copy and then a little more background noise on another. And by the time you got four or five generations away, it didn't even sound like the original. And how much is that like what we see in America today, 
where one generation came up. Jonathan Edwards arose in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and God does this miraculous revival, and so many come to Jesus throughout the nation, and the nation decides, we're going to serve the Lord, and then the next generation drifts just a little bit. They don't rebel against God. They don't turn from God. They just turn away a little. And the next generation turns a little, and the next generation turns a little until you get enough generations away from a real move of God where it doesn't even sound like the original anymore. I believe that that is the world that we live in today. When this nation was founded, there were some values. When, this church, when the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, there were some values There was some love, there was some passion, there was some grace, there was some holiness, there was some generosity, there was some sincerity. And I wonder, as I look around at the generation today, if those things one day are going to be lost in our nation forever. I wonder if if the remnants of who we were is just going to be a relic. I wonder if it's going to be something that you can only find a story of something you can only get a copy of in an antique store, but not something that anybody today actually connects with and relates to. Is there a day coming where that could be the case? You saw the quote in the video, quote by President Ronald Reagan before he was the president, which I believe is is so incredibly true and, and so applicable in many ways. But he said that freedom is always just one generation away from extinction. That each generation must rise up and take hold of freedom for themselves. That freedom is not guaranteed, that it is not promised to us. And I think that's true. But I think we can apply it in so many other ways. I think that truth is always just one generation away from extinction. That, that morality is always one generation away from extinction. That just a sincere love for God is one generation away. That the church is one generation away. And I believe that we stand on that cliff, that precipice, in 2014. When you look around at our world, I wonder if you ever feel like I do, that, that some of the things that used to be so natural, that used to just be second nature, that used to just be taken for granted, aren't really around anymore. And I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. Trust me, if you hang out with me, I'm an optimist. I'm usually a pretty positive person. I know I cry on Sunday mornings, but I'm usually a pretty happy dude. Uh, uh, I look at the bright side in almost everything. And so I don't want to stand up here and be hellfire and brimstone and everything's terrible and everything's awful. Uh, but I do think we need to wake up to the reality of what's going on around us. Uh, when I look at, at the sexuality of youth culture, I see how things that are done now on network TV and prime time used to be things that were whispered in the dark. Th- things that we were afraid, even my generation, and I'm not even that old. Things that we were afraid growing up for anybody older than us to hear us talking about. We had to whisper it. We had to be quiet. We had to kind of hold down our giggling as we told some terrible, dirty joke. And I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying this is the world it was in. Now that stuff's on, on network TV. Open, brazen, proud, in our face. And you wonder, are some of those values that used to be assumed part of our culture, part of America, are they starting to disappear? What happens is one generation will accept the truth, the next generation will assume the truth, the third generation will confuse the truth, and once the truth is confused, it will eventually be a generation that loses the truth. And I'm not sure exactly where we are in that cycle, but I know we're a lot closer to confusing and losing than we are to accepting the truth ourselves. 
truth is never more than one generation away from extinction. Some of us as parents, as leaders, as examples, as men and women of God, we need to be aware of this. As many of you know, I'm about to be a father. And uh, very excited for us to have a child. And as I look at the world that our baby is going to be born into, as I look at the, the culture that our child is coming into, I, I have some things I'm praying about. And you, I'm sure, when, when you were pregnant, you probably had some things you were praying about too. Yes, we're praying for our baby to be healthy. Yes, we're praying for our baby to be intelligent. Yes, we're praying for important things like our baby to be a Seahawk fan. We're going before the Lord for the things that matter. Uh, but even more than any of those things, even more than health, more than intelligence, more than skill, we're praying that our baby loves Jesus. We are praying that our child has a genuine hunger for God, that, that the flaws and the weaknesses which he or she is going to see in mom and dad, and, and they're going to see a lot, that that would not prevent them from knowing God for themselves, that we would get out of God's way, and that he would be able to connect with our child, and not just this child, with, with our future children. We didn't just start praying this when Melody got pregnant. We've been praying this for years, that, God, when you give us children, that they would have a heart for you, that they would grow up to know and discover the calling that you have very uniquely for them, that they would not feel pressure to be like us or to do the ministry that we do, but that they would know that they have a calling for themselves. That's our prayer. That's what we're looking forward to for our child, because truth is never more than one generation away. Truth is never one more than one generation from going extinct. And, and we can see that illustrated very clearly in the stereotype, which we're rebuking and standing against in our family, but the stereotype of pastor's kids. There's a stereotype out there that pastor's kids are some trouble. I don't know if you've heard it, that pastor's kids can be rebellious. I don't know whether PK over here clapping, uh, but... Uh, th- th- there's some stereotypes out there. My, mother's was a, my mother was a pastor's kid, uh, so, so she grew up under those stereotypes and those assumptions. And so let me just say this. We are rebuking the devil right now. We are not going to have those pastor's kids, and, I, and we're rebuking you right now. If you start saying stuff about our kid, I'm going to slap you. Our kid is going to be good. I'm just saying. I'm saying. I've set off my pastor hat and put on my daddy hat real quick. I'm protecting my kids. They're not growing up with expectations that they're going to be rebellious. They're not growing up with people looking for the opportunity for them to be just another pastor's kid. Oh, we're not, we're not going to expect our kids to be bad. We're going to expect our kids to love Jesus. We're going to expect our kids to have a passion for the God who created them. And, and that's something that I am so, so serious about and so excited about to see what God does. I'm not saying my kid's going to be perfect. I know he's not. I know he's not. He's going to take after his mama. Uh, but... mostly perfect almost perfect unlike me i love you baby i love you baby we know i'm not perfect they already know that they think you are so i'm just saying we got some issues we got some issues it's the way that it is but if any we're going to believe that our kid is going to serve god it's not just going to happen because the world that he or she's going to be born into is crazy i got a few stats that i brought for you today uh in the next 24 hours 24 hours from now over 2,700 teenage girls in America are going to get pregnant. In, in the time span between today and when kids start going to lunch at school tomorrow, 2,700 teenage girls in America will be impregnated. Pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, they recently took a poll of kids ages 14 and over and asked them how many have been involved in what we call sexting. We're having to invent new worlds, words to describe the depravity of this generation. Sexting, if you're not familiar, is basically taking a picture uh, of something... Uh, ungodly, something inappropriate, something uh, on your own body usually, and sending it to someone 
else uh, or maybe a different person's uh, involvement. And I hate to be gross. I hate to be disgusting. But this is the world that we're in. 14-year-olds, 50% have already been involved in that, which means that if by 14, 50% have, by 11, 10, 15, 20% have. It starts young. This is the world that we are living in with these sexually explicit messages everywhere. In the next 24 hours, over 1,400 young people in America will attempt suicide. In the next 24 hours, 1,400 young people in our country will decide that life is no longer worth living. Thankfully, most of them will be unsuccessful. Many of them will not be unsuccessful. Many of them will succeed. I just used a terrible double negative. Many of them will succeed, unfortunately. But 1,400 would come to the place where they think it's not even worth going on. That breaks my heart. It shouldn't be this way. There are some things that need to be addressed, some things we need to be aware of. The thing of it is, I'm 33. I'm not some grumpy old man. I'm I'm not a guy. I didn't grow up walking seven miles to school both ways, uphill in the snow. That wasn't my generation. That was the generation before me. I'm not standing there, get off my lawn. Like, that's not me. And and I look around, and I'm like, I'm not old enough to feel this old. But the world is jacked. Stuff is falling apart. How is this going down the way that it is? I remember what it was like to be a junior in high school trying to get a date. I remember that. I'm not that far removed from it. And now I'm experiencing what it's like to look fatherhood directly in the face. I've worked with teenagers basically my entire adult life, and what's crazy is now I can say that phrase, and that is not a period of time that I can count on my fingers anymore. I've been working with teenagers for almost 14 years, full time. It's amazing to see the changes that have gone in a culture in 14 years. It's amazing to see how far Youth culture has drifted in, in that short period of time. When we took over City Church, Melody and I felt, and, and I believe that we still feel like we were kind of uniquely positioned between generations. We, we always felt like the vast majority of our church was either younger than us or older than us. And, and like that, that most of our church was like people with teenagers. And so they were in their 40s and 50s, and, and they were kind of on that side of us. And then there's all these teenagers and kids on this side of us. And, and that we were just kind of weirdly uniquely positioned to speak to two generations. And so my hope over the next few weeks is to do that. I want to speak to the younger generation, and I want to speak to the older generation about the challenges that we face and the opportunities that we face to see a move of God in this generation. It used to be that if you called yourself a Christian, there were certain things that were assumed. It means we used to know that if you said you were a Christian, it meant that you believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God, the whole Bible doesn't necessarily mean that in our culture anymore, although that is what we believe here at City Church, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It used to mean that if you called yourself a Christian, you believed that Jesus was the only way to salvation. It doesn't always mean that anymore, although once again, we do believe that here at City Church. It used to be that if you called yourself a Christian, it meant that you believed that sin was sin. If the Bible called it sin, then that meant that it was sin, and it didn't matter what was popular or accepted in the culture. It didn't matter if people called us intolerant or didn't like us. We were going to stand up and say, hey, that's the truth. The truth is what the Bible says. And make no mistake, just because we like loud music, just because we wear jeans, just because we have a different atmosphere, we are old school when it comes to the Word of God. We believe the Bible is God's Word. We believe 
the truth only flows from the word of God. And we have to tap in to that truth. So I'm not willing to stand by and let a generation fall apart. This generation needs to experience God for themselves because generation duplication from one generation to the next produces some very inaccurate copies, some terrible drift. I don't know how many of you guys are on Twitter or are familiar with Twitter, but Twitter's kind of the, the new big thing, and Twitter's been around. I remember first hearing about Twitter, I think, in 2006. So it's almost been around for a decade, maybe, and I'm sure it was around a little bit before I heard of it. So it's been around for a while, and, and Twitter is this way to express yourself in 140 characters or less, and it kind of gives you this opportunity to speak by the use of what we call hashtags. A hashtag is basically a number sign with a word behind it. Some people hate hashtags and think they're the most annoying things ever. I kind of like hashtags. I use hashtags quite a bit. Uh, I remember when I first saw Twitter, I thought it was the stupidest thing ever. I hated it. I thought it was, this will never catch on. This is so lame. And now I'm all about it. So I've given in to the Twitter. But a hashtag that, that trended a couple of years ago and actually kind of pops back up every once in a while. When I say trended, basically what that means is they track what are the most popular hashtags, and that way somebody in South Haven can communicate with somebody in Somalia by the use of a hashtag. We put this hashtag on it, and you can have a conversation across continents uh, based upon this hashtag. And so uh, they track which ones are trending, what's popular. The Olympics have had quite a few popular hashtags. Certain things have happened uh, throughout, and so people all over can communicate. Well, this one hashtag popped up a couple years ago, and it continues to pop up every once in a while that it's going to break your heart, I think. It broke mine. The hashtag was this. It was abortion clinic playlist. A trending topic in our world, a popular tweeting category in our world was abortion clinic playlist. Essentially, it was this. It was a bunch of young people, and you can go and look at their tweets, uh, who decided it would be funny to come up with the names, titles of songs that sound like they would be played at an abortion clinic. Younger generation thinking this is hilarious. I brought a few of the examples that I looked up for you. One of them that was very popular was Usher, There Goes My Baby. Another one that was very popular was Die Young by Kesha. Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. Multiple layers of disgusting on that one. Uh, Disco Inferno. Another one bites the dust. Mama said knock you out. Bye, bye, bye. People are retweeting this stuff. It's bouncing all over the internet. Laughing thinking it's hilarious. And here we are in the land that says that we believe in life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. The country that was founded on the value of life. And there's a generation that grows up laughing at the atrocity of abortion. And I wonder, I look at that, and I wonder how did we get so far from where we once were to where we are now. And let me just say this. If there's anybody in here who has had an abortion, we do not condemn you. We are not against you. We love you. We believe that God loves you. That doesn't mean you can't go to heaven. Nothing like that. But we do believe that abortion is murder. That is killing an innocent life. And we believe very strongly that we have a commission to stand for life, to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. So we're going to continue to always do that. But I bring that to you today to illustrate the generation that is growing up. And so what I want to do is I don't want to just be Mr. Doom and Gloom by any means. Here's what I think. It's not just this generation's fault. 
truth is it's mostly not their fault. It's mostly the generation before's fault. And we've got a responsibility. The onus is not on them to fix themselves. The onus is on us to show them, to model for them, to pray for them, to intercede for them, to teach them the truth. And we can stand back and throw rocks at this generation. We can stand back and look at all the things that are wrong with it and all the things that they do wrong. Or we can stand up and make a difference for this generation. And I believe our church is called to stand up. I believe our church is called to pursue them, to go after them. So today, I just want to give you two kind of foundational thoughts for this series. Two things that I believe God would speak to us that we're going to build off of over the next few weeks for our generation, for those my age and older, that that we can do to reach out to this generation, to make a difference for this generation. We read about this generation in the book of Judges, and it's mind-blowing. How could they see God open and part the Red Sea? How could they see God cause the walls of Jericho to fall down? How could they see and experience all of these different things that have gone on down through, through their, the years as they came into the promised land? How could they see that and not teach their kids about Jesus? It just blows my mind. It breaks my heart. It's hard for me to fathom, and yet when I look at America... I think it's so similar. How can a new generation come that's turning its back so hard against God? Well, here's a couple of thoughts. First thought is this. It's not really a problem of awareness. It doesn't say that they didn't know about God. They didn't know God. If you look at Memphis, Memphis pops up uh, on the top of most of the bad lists and the bottom of most of the good lists in America. And I love our city, and I'm glad that God's placed us here in, in this city. But when we pop up on this list... It's not a problem of awareness. We got more churches in the Memphis area than we got barbecue joints. And that's a lot. There's one on every corner. When Pastor Jason came to this area 10 years ago to plant City Church, he didn't come here because they didn't have any churches. He came here because there's a generation that needs to experience God, that needs to connect with God. So it's not a problem of awareness. It's not that people haven't heard about Jesus. It's that they don't know him. They don't know him. Wednesday morning, we have a, a men's group that meets here every Wednesday at 6 called Man Up. We started a couple weeks ago. This past Wednesday, uh, as we got into our teaching, into our discussion, quite a few of the men mentioned kind of the same theme that, man, we have a responsibility to go after young men. We have a responsibility to help these kids get their stuff together. We have a responsibility to teach them these things that we see that are so, so lacking in the culture, and I totally completely agree and I'm so grateful that they saw that but can I say this it's not just a bunch of dudes who are nuts enough to get up at six o'clock it's all of us that have that mandate and that responsibility so for all of you who do know the Lord young old black white rich or poor this is for you two things that I'd ask you to jot down that we have to do that we're going to build our foundation for first of all they cannot know him if we don't show him they can't know him if we don't Show them. If they're going to know Jesus, if they're going to experience God, if they're going to connect with him for themselves, we've got to show them. We can look all over this culture and say, man, these kids don't know the Lord. Whose fault is that? We've got to show them. We got to. Everybody play along. This is our crowd participation portion of our service today. Uh, We're going to basically do Simon Says, except I'm not going to say Simon Says because you're way too old for that. Uh, So touch your nose. Everybody play along. Touch your nose. Touch your ear. Touch your eye. Touch your hair. Touch your mouth. Touch your nose. Touch your eye. How many just touched your ear? A few of you, right? Why? 
It's the power of showing. It's not just what you hear, it's what you see. And we know that, we've built that into our children's culture with this game called Simon Says. They know it's not just about what they say, it's about what they see. And yet, so many times we expect a generation to hear the truth and accept the truth just because they were taught it, and yet we're not modeling it for them. We're not showing them. How can young people know that God is compassionate if mom and dad get in a fight and don't speak to each other for three days after the fight? How can they know, how can they see that God is a God of compassion? How can they know that God is a God of forgiveness when your in-laws said something to you five years ago and you still hate them because of it? How can they know that God is a provider when we don't trust him with our finances? How can they know that God is faithful when they never see us put our faith and trust in him? How can they know that God is worthy of giving our lives to if all they see is mom or dad come to church once every five or six weeks when it's convenient and it doesn't conflict with the schedule? How can they know if we don't show them? How can they ever understand if somebody doesn't show them? How can they know that God's word is life if they don't see you reading it, discussing it, memorizing it, teaching it, living it? How can they know if we don't show them? That's a good time for an amen in there because there's some good preaching, there's some good truth. It's all of us. I think a little bit personally, I'm thankful, so thankful for people that God gave me who showed me Jesus, who didn't just tell me about Jesus. I think back to my pastor most of my high school years. His name was Roger Gosnell. I started going to his church the end of my sophomore year, and we went there throughout high school and, and into college. And actually, my parents still go to that church now. Pastor Roger has since retired. He's enjoying the retired life. But uh, Pastor Roger uh, had this amazing church that, that grew, this move of God that came in this little bitty town called Spindale, North Carolina. And dude is a terrible preacher. Uh, we got teenagers in our church who can preach so much better than Pastor Roger. Here's why Pastor Roger was such a great pastor. He knew how to show Jesus. He knew how to show Jesus. You see, shortly before we came to the church, Pastor Roger became something of a local celebrity because his son worked at a gas station. and Somebody came in to rob the gas station. Two men actually came in to rob the gas station, and they shot and killed him. And when Pastor Roger's son was murdered, Pastor Roger did the craziest thing I've ever heard of in my life. He started going to the prison and witnessing to the men who shot his son. And the two men who took his son's life came to Jesus in prison because of a pastor who understood grace and forgiveness so much more than the pain that he experienced. And I guarantee you he felt some real pain. The pain was genuine. It wasn't that he didn't love his son. It's that he loved his son enough not to let him die in vain. It's the most God-like, Christ-like love I've ever witnessed. And because Pastor Roger, who was a terrible communicator and did not know how to preach very well, but because he loved people so much, because he showed Jesus so strong, God started doing something in that community. People started coming to Christ all over the place because one guy was willing to show Jesus in a way that is still to this day hard for me to comprehend, that he his love for God was that sincere, that his ability to forgive and to walk in grace was that genuine. How can they know him if we don't show him? We've got to show. We've got to evidence God in our lives if we want our generation to come to Jesus, if we want our three-year-olds to grow up and see God, if we want our teenagers to grow up and experience God. 
How can they know him if we don't show him? Secondly, and last, they don't need rules to live by. They need a calling to live for. They don't need rules to live by. They need a calling to live for. We've kind of touched on this theme a little bit in our past series, but I want to say it explicitly today. They don't need rules to live by. They need a calling to live for. And I understand I'm a rules guy. We're about to have a kid, and we will have some rules. And as that kid grows up and they break those rules, they're going to get a whooping. They're going to get spanked. And some of you are like, man, that's cruel. How can you spank your kid? No, that's not cruel. That's called awesome. That's what you do for your kid. That's called loving your child. That's called being a parent. We're going to spank our kids. Uh, and, and we're going to love them through it. We're going to pray with them through it. We're going to hug them through it. But we're going to let them know there's some pain that comes from disobeying. We believe in rules. But rules in and of themselves are not going to protect your kid. They don't just need rules. They need to experience and understand that they have a calling to live for. That's why when we pray for our child, we don't pray, God, give us a good little boy or a good little girl. We don't pray, God, give us a kid that follows all the rules. We pray, God, give us a child that understands they have a calling on their life. Help us to communicate to our kid that there's something that you have a purpose for them, that there's something for them to live for. That's a prayer that we have for our child. Because they don't just need rules to live by. They need a calling to live for. I believe in rules, but I believe so much more in the power of a calling. When I was 15 years old, almost 16 years old, I was in a little bitty church, uh, which we ended up leaving uh, about six months later over some other situations. But I was in this little bitty church, Small Assemblies of God Church in North Carolina. The pastor there, was name was Pastor Dan Thompson, and Pastor Dan has since gone on to be with the Lord but Pastor Dan pulled me into his office one Sunday morning, and, and it was small, such a small church, we had six kids in our youth group. And uh, the person who was leading our youth ministry was moving on to a different situation, and, and here I was, this 15, almost 16-year-old kid, and he calls me and he says, Troy, I want to know, what, what do you think we need for our next youth leader? And I've got to find a new youth leader. What kind of characteristics should we look for? And so I start going down this list of, you know, I don't know, I'm 15 years old. What do you need in a youth leader? He needs to be fun. He needs to understand kids. I don't know. Like, I'm just throwing out whatever things a 15-year-old says. Well, I go through the list, and he gets to the end of the list, and he says, well, I think that you fit every one of those things. I'd like to ask you to take over our youth ministry. And I was Lord. I've never been so surprised in all my life. Like, I did not see this coming at all. And, and so I'm like, uh, can I talk to my parents about it? Uh, and he said, yeah, definitely talk to your parents about it. So I talked to my mom and dad about it. I'm like, Pastor Dan wants me to be the new youth leader. Uh, and I had recently, I mean, very, very recently discovered that, that I had a call into ministry and started to, to verbalize that and say, you know what, I think God wants me to be a pastor one day. And I'm thinking, one day. Like, one day, I'm going to be doing something, not like next month. Uh, and so he asked me to take over, and really long story short, I, I take over this youth ministry with no clue. I mean, you may think I have no clue now. I had no clue then what I was doing. I had no idea, and yet I knew that God wanted to use me, and I knew that I had a pastor who believed I had a calling. And because that man believed in my calling, Man, it became steeled in me. I wasn't going to back down from it. I wasn't going to turn away from it. This is who I am. This is what God's called me to be. And, man, I went out there, and I did the best little job a 15-year-old boy could do at leading that youth ministry, and it wasn't great. Uh, you're expecting me to say, like, there's this massive revival, and all these kids came to Jesus. didn't happen that way. Uh, but I learned a lot, and I do believe that God used me in some sort of a way in this season. It was about six months that I did that. But I never forgot that Pastor Dan believed in my calling. 
I never forgot that he affirmed my calling. I never forgot that he saw something in me that he said, Troy, I believe that God's got a call on your life and he wants to do something incredible through you. And I don't think it has to wait until you're 25. I don't think it has to wait until you're 30. I believe that God can start to use you now in this generation. And it was that discovery of a calling. It was that understanding of of a sense of purpose that kept me from so many mistakes in life. Not all of them. I still made my share. But I can tell you time after time where I came to temptation, where I came to a moment where I could go this way or go that way, and I said, no, i got to stay on the straight and narrow because God's got a call in my life, because God wants me to do something for his glory, because somebody's going to be impacted, because somebody's eternity is going to be in the balance based on the decisions that I make with my life. Your young person needs to know they got a calling. They need to know that God wants to use them. I'm not saying they're called to be a pastor. I'm not saying they're called to be a youth pastor. Most of them probably aren't. Some of them maybe are. But they got a calling. They have a calling. they got something that God wants to do in them. My pastor didn't just give me rules. He gave me a calling. He pointed me to a sense of purpose and destiny. So let's raise up a generation that's not just surviving the world. Let's raise up a generation that's changing the world. Let's raise up a generation that's not just a bunch of good little boys and girls, but let's raise up a generation of young men and women who can take over the world for the glory of God. Because it matters. Because it's important. Man, Kid City matters. The 662 matters. If you've never served in a children's ministry or youth ministry or you're not even currently serving right now, I challenge you. I dare you. Man, get involved with the next generation. Get involved in the life of a young person. Get involved in the life of a kid and watch the difference that God makes through you. See, I have great hope. It's dark outside. The world looks pretty crazy. When I look around at the news, when I look online, I'm blown away by some of the the perversion, by some of the grotesqueness of our society. But you know what God's word says in the book of Romans? God's word says where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And that's what gets me fired up. If we got a a culture that sin is abounding in, and we do, there's a promise of God that grace is going to abound. And that's what we're speaking over this generation. That's what we believe for this generation. That's why we believe it is not too late. It is not beyond hope. That God can do something in this generation and it can start right here because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And I believe that we should be excited about the fact that grace is promised to abound where sin abounds. God's got something he wants to do. So not only are we just one generation from truth going extinct, and not only are we just one generation from disaster, if we come together, if we preach the gospel, if we show the reflection of the living God to this generation, if we give them a calling to pursue and not just rules to live by, we are one generation from this nation coming back to Jesus. We are one generation from this world experiencing revival like it never has. We are one generation from everything changing for the good. It's not just one generation from a falling apart. It's one generation from something that will blow our minds through the work of God. We're just one generation away from seeing that change, from feeding the poor. We're one generation from eliminating the sex trade. We're one generation from eliminating atrocities all over the world if we choose to rise up and be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're one generation away. Let's pray.